coming up on Garden Talk. It actually changes the flavor of the plant. And so when the bugs actually go to bite into the plant, it tastes bad, and it actually, they're like, oh, this is not a plant that I should be eating. And then they leave and they go to search for some other type of, of plant. Don't just believe what they give you on the back of the bottle. Mix what's on the back of the bottle. You'll be surprised to realize how insanely high it is. Wait, that's not 1.0 EC. That comes out to like 2.5. When I set my pH at 5.8, it is not budging. I can come back a week later, it's going to be 5.8. Doesn't matter how many times I flood my table. The cocoa medium itself, it doesn't hold on to nutrients like soil does, uh, which is good and bad, which is why some people use play with your nutrients ahead of time before you get into it. Know your nutrient system because that's going to be the most vital thing in your cocoa grow. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Talk podcast. This is episode number 12. In this episode, I interview Doggo the Hut. If you're part of the gardening community on YouTube, there's a good chance you've heard of him. He was the host of GrowTube, which was a very popular weekly live stream that has over 100 episodes. He has been gardening for nine years now, and he enjoys growing a wide variety of plants, from fruit trees, leafy greens, medicinal plants, blueberries, strawberries, peppers, and a whole lot more. Too many to name. In this episode, we talk about growing plants in Coco Coyer. Dalgo has been growing in Coco Coyer for a very long time now, and so I figured I'd sit down with him and dig deep and find out what exactly he does when he grows his plants in Coco Coyer. Just a quick note on a mess up in this episode, I mispronounced the word cation. Instead, I pronounce it as cation. I just wanted to give you a heads up on that one because I know there are some sticklers out there that won't hesitate to call me out in the comment section. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. I release these Garden Talk podcasts every single week. If you're listening on one of the podcast platforms, such as Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and review. And if you're really digging these episodes and you want to support even more, I do have a Patreon. The link is patreon.com slash mrgrowit. And I'll also provide a link down in the YouTube description section. Hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's get into it. All right, Doggo the Hut. How's it going, man? Welcome good. to Garden Talk. Good, how are Talk. you? How you doing? I'm doing good, good. Good to connect with you. Yeah, great to finally meet. Definitely very inspired by your work, GrowTube, and your YouTube channels, and so on and so forth. Oh, thank uh, you. So I'm totally pumped to have you on here uh, this time I'm around. I'm excited to be here. I've, I've been watching you too, slowly climb the ranks, and shoot, you're way up there over 100,000 subs now, kicking butt. Absolutely. Okay, so for those that don't know who you are, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm just a regular person, just like a lot of the people watching on YouTube. Uh, I started growing because uh, several years ago, early on in my 30s, I was diagnosed with uh, degenerative disc disease uh, for my spine. I have two vertebrae that are nearly disintegrated and once we you know took the mris and everything you can, my spinal cords pinched and um uh, you know i was overweight uh, and all the doctors wanted to do was pump me full of a bunch of you know vicodin and over-the-counter medication uh, and i was really against that uh, because uh, early on um, i had uh, a friend of mine's younger brother passed away from that uh, and i've had some you know uh, family addictions and, and things like that related around uh, prescription medication so i've always stayed away from it and it got to the point where i couldn't sleep more than like three four hours a night just from the pain uh, and then it was some friends of mine that had reintroduced me uh, to the medicinal plant. Um, 
I tried it once when I was back in college, had freaked out and just never really paid attention to it because it just wasn't my thing. Uh, after being slowly reintroduced to it and also being introduced to CBD, uh, I, I, it was like life-changing for me, very life-changing. I could sleep at night. I slept like a baby. Um, I felt like I was becoming a better person overall. I was thinking differently. My mood was much more relaxed. All of my stress was going away. Um, and it just it, – it was a complete 180 for me. Uh, which is why I really consider it a miracle plant because it, it really did change my life and, and my surroundings and my, my family life and everything. And I, at the time, CBD uh, in the early 2000s was very hard to come by. Uh, and when it would come in, an, in a dispensary, you would have to pay attention. And if you didn't get there that day, there was there was no way that you were going to get it because 24 hours later it would be gone. So I was in a dispensary one day and they just had – there are these, uh, you know, canatonic plants over there. And I was checking out and I said, uh, you know, and I was new at the time. Too. I was like, you you guys just you sell those? And they were like, oh, yeah, no, it's California. You can grow. You know, you have your card. You're here. You get X number of plants. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll take one of those, <laughs> you know. And I got home and my wife was like, what is this? I was like, hey, look, if I can't find it anywhere, I might as well grow it. Right. And that's how it got started. And from there, it just went to going to cups, uh, learning from learning how to grow. That's how I discovered Vader and Ocean Grown Seeds. And then just from going to cups, uh, you know, being a fan of Ocean Grown, learning, interacting with the crew, slowly becoming a part of the crew, uh, kind of being adopted under Vader's uh, wing, if you will, and learning how to breed, learning about the industry as a whole. Because also at the time, I kind of came into the industry relatively hot because I was so hot on this idea. I immediately tried – some friends and I started up a company uh, called Santa Cruz Bakeware, which was a, a tremendous, uh, a beautiful failure uh, or beautiful disaster I think is a great term. Um, and we came in hot and that's also part of not only learning to grow and hang around Ocean Grown. Uh, it was great for Vader to also teach me about the community and like, hey, you know – a lot of that stuff doesn't work here. You know, those those kind of marketing practices and things like that. Let me teach you about the plant, the community, what it's all about. And it took several years to beat that out of me, but I've kind of learned and adopted and, and grown over over the years and, uh, you know, started up shows like The Grow Tube and bringing other people together, starting to use some of my networking skills uh, that the community could benefit from and um, – you know, start doing shows and growing and breeding. And that's kind of where I am today. I mean, this, this has been kind of like a hobby, well, a, a medical necessity turned into extreme hobby turned into potentially I could do this for a living someday. And that's kind of the ultimate goal is to, you know, be able to become financially independent and do this for myself and my family uh, without having to worry about anybody else. That makes sense. I remember watching you on GrowTube, um, you know, be the host on there and you really did a great job um, as far as bringing together a group of guys who uh, and girls who um, who really just had all different knowledge bases across the plant, you know, you had somebody who, who knew lighting, you had somebody who knew breeding, and they could really just chime in about the different areas. And um, you know, each show was a different topic, um, and you had like, geez, I remember it was like five hundred to. 800 people when I was tuning in were, were tuned mm -hmm. in as well with those live streams. So it was very, very popular. And you had over 100 episodes. Yep. Um, so hats off to you on that one. Uh, I know that, you know, that channel was erased. 
um, you know, YouTube is just, <laughs> yeah, it's who knows, you know, the, it, it changes, uh, all the time. So, uh, yeah, th- that channel went down, it disappeared. We had actually tried to upload it on other platforms at the time were removed from other platforms as well. Uh, now luckily it lives on its own channel. So some of the episodes are reuploaded and actually what, what, encouraged me to re-upload it was I was going through my backup hard drive one day and my backup drive crashed, literally crashed. So I had to, uh, the disc wouldn't mount. So I had to recover all like four terabytes of data. I had to try and recover. So I didn't even get all the shows back off of that drive. So that's when I was like, okay, I'm just going to re-upload this again. So at least it's out there because my, my backup drive is crashing. I want to get it out there. So I believe there's like 80 some odd shows re-uploaded to the, the channel now and it lives in its own place, which I think is better. It should have always lived in its own place. And I kind of like this new – the way people have everything segmented now, even like yourself. You have you know one channel for the show, one channel um, you know for the grow. And uh, so that's kind of what we're doing now. I have my channel. GrowTube has its channel over there, and then our new project, Growers Workshop, has its own channel as well. I'll link all three of those channels down in the description section below so viewers can head on over and check out the different shows you got going on. So cool. Awesome. Thank you for that. Let's get into the topic for today. So yeah. growing in Coco Coir, you have a lot of experience doing that. You've mm-hmm. grown for several years. Uh, in Coca Coir. Uh, so I really want to pick your brain uh, about it, how you do it. Um, I know you have a full seed to harvest video uh, mm-hmm. growing in Coco in cocoa. And um, so we're kind of referencing that in a sense, but let's break down everything there is to know about kind of growing in cocoa, at least your experience and what you do when growing in cocoa, because there's so many different ways to do it. Um, Let's start with the medium itself. Mm -hmm. Is there a particular brand that you use? You can get cocoa in bags, you can get cocoa in bricks. Um, Talk about your experience kind of growing in uh, either different brands or or bricks versus bags, so on and so forth. So, so I honestly don't have any experience using the bricks. So I've never had to rehydrate and use the uh, the bricks. Uh, I've tried, uh, I think it's uh, Mother Earth uh, cocoa brand and other brands before, and I've really just ended on Canna, uh, and Canna is what I use. And a lot of people, you know, they see the Instagram photos and they're like, "Well, what's what's the recipe? What's everything you use?" And and I always tell people, "Well, my." My regime is actually very simple. I, I you know, kind of like the KISS method, keep it simple. Um, it is, it's canna and, and mammoth, and that's it. Um, I've, there's a formula that they have that works great. It's stable. Uh, and the cocoa core itself is, oh, I, I don't know where exactly they source it from, but it's like the loam of the earth. It's just so fluffy every time. And I get consistent results. And for me, as someone who's breeding, I need consistency more than anything else. I need to know that when I'm doing run after run after run, I'm going to get the same results because I'm pheno hunting, I'm trying to search out strains, and I can't have all this swing or, you know, I like I buy four bags and three of them are great, but then one bag's crappy. So I got like half of my plants are doing good. Then a couple of plants, I can't figure out why, what's going on. And now there's like, you know, springtails floating around in the water. Like what? I don't get because you got, you know, one bag. Uh, one bad batch of, of cocoa. So um, I tend to stick with Canna um, because it, it works for me and I get consistent results uh, all the time. Gotcha. So with Canna, you don't have to do any of the, the rinsing or the buffering before use like you do need to do with the bricks, right? <clears throat> yeah, c- correct. Correct. Uh, uh, Canna's already pre-charged 
as they say, so a lot of cocoa you'll get when you un, un, um, kind of rehydrate it, if you will, from the bricks. Uh, and for the viewers that don't know what we're talking about is what they'll do is they'll dehydrate cocoa and then vacuum pack it down into these bricks. Because when you get a bag of cocoa, it's this big fluffy bag. And so shipping and stuff becomes a pain and it's more expensive. And so people who are looking to, you know, people looking for a more affordable option will tend to go for the bricks because they're smaller. Even Canna sells the bricks and they're half the price they are of their their bags. So that's another great way to get it. But typically you have to rehydrate them and recharge them, as they say. And typically what they're talking about is the uh, the magnesium in the cocoa. Uh, so uh, cocoa has a, and I hope I don't screw this up, it has a, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, it has a very low... Uh, Cation ion exchange, and this is where cation exchange. Cation exchange, yeah. And this is where see, this is why I did the grow tube because at first I didn't know how to grow, so I had to have all the experts on to talk about it. So I've just just me absorbing the 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 data. I could be wrong Um, with the way you pronounce it, anyways. (laughs) And and so what will happen? What that basically means is that the cocoa medium itself it doesn't hold on to nutrients like soil does. Uh, which is good and bad, which is why some people use it, which is why I love growing in it, because it doesn't hold anything. It is truly an inert medium. But in order for it to function properly, for that exchange to happen properly, you need a certain amount of magnesium in the cocoa. And so typically when you're running in cocoa, a lot of people, they'll say, well, you got to throw an extra cow mag. Well, you know, why, why is that? Well, that's because the cocoa will eat it up. Uh, the cocoa will actually absorb the magnesium um, and then it just sits there and holds there and it's not available for the plant. And the rest of the nutrients, it doesn't hold a whole lot of those. And so those all get uptaken and then there's nothing left for the plant to uptake. So you'll see a lot of magnesium deficiencies uh, when you start to grow with cocoa. And then you throw LEDs into the mix when you grow cocoa under LED. LEDs, as we know, sucks the magnesium right out of plants or at least makes them churn through it a lot quicker so they starve for it because of all the uh, – uh, the blue photons. So um, typically you'll need to add some extra cow mag or you know, recharge that brick in a cow mag solution to load up that uh, cocoa with some, some extra magnesium and calcium and get it ready for its first run. So that way you can soak up the water. And another good thing to look for in cocoa, whatever the brand is, you want to make sure the wicking properties are good. And that's how you can judge kind of a good batch of cocoa versus bad batch of cocoa. You should be able to water at the bottom of your pot and the water should be able to wick upwards all the way up to the top. And that's how cocoa is doing its job. Uh, the way I grow is actually uh, how Canna recommends not to grow, which is which is oddly enough, faders come up with this this very awkward formula and style of growing, but it works fantastic. But that wicking is another way you can judge, you know, regardless of the brand, is it going to wick uh, and is it going to distribute that water evenly throughout your pot? And that's also partly what you're looking for as well. So you don't get soggy spots versus like dry spots. What's all around you, almost everywhere you look and makes your life better? Birds. Learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called Birds of a Feather Talk Together. Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. 
I guarantee it. I grow in soil now, but when I did grow in cocoa, um, I grew probably about maybe six or seven plants just total in cocoa. So I have some experience, but I'm not an expert by any means, but I did get those cheap bricks off of Amazon and boy, are they loaded with sodium. Um, and and boy, is it a labor intensive process to rehydrate the bricks. Um, you know, the, the rinsing process, the buffering process, you know, when you're adding in that calcium magnesium, it's very labor intensive and it takes a while. Um, there's actually a really good video. If anybody's interested in learning more about that, it's by Dr. MJ Coco. Uh, search how to rinse and buffer cocoa. I believe if you search that, then you'll get to the video. It's, it should be one of the first ones that pop up. It's step-by-step on how to do those processes. So I highly recommend watching that one. But after doing that, uh, I'm just going to go with the bags for now on. It's just it's yeah, so we, much we even recommend saver. Exactly. We even recommend that people buy the cheap cocoa in bags before you resort to the bricks. The bricks should really be a last resort. If you can afford it, if you can get to a store... I, Totally understand. Some people are in red states or red, you know, countries, and they need to get stuff shipped discreetly. And the bricks is really your only option. So, great. That's a great option for people. But if you have the ability, even if it's cheap cocoa, go with the cheap cocoa in a bag before you go with the brick. You will just save yourself headaches down the road in terms of trying to figure out why your pH is off and things like that. Why? Why isn't your reservoir stable? It's probably the cocoa. Absolutely. Now, a lot of things that people do uh, with cocoa is, you know, they'll have the bag of cocoa, but they'll add in additional aeration, right? So uh, perlite is a common thing that people add mm-hmm. in. Do you add any type of aeration into it, whether it be perlite or rice hulls or anything like that? No, no, nothing. Pure cocoa. And again, that's why I said that's why I love the can of cocoa, because it's so airy and fluffy itself. You don't need you don't need to add anything to it. It's just, it's so great and, and the quality is so good and it's buffered already so well. Um, it just, the whole system works. So I don't, I don't add anything. Now, a good thing I will recommend to add for people who do like to add uh, is a little bit of perlite. Uh, so 70 30 is a really common mix 70% cocoa core and 30% uh, perlite. Uh, and I think I've even seen Fox Farms uh, has uh, a 70 30 mix they're selling now too. And it's becoming very popular uh, with a, a lot of the kind of soil or medium companies are putting together that 70 30 mix. So um, it's great. And that works great for a lot of the top down feed, drain to waste. Uh, type of uh, feed systems where a lot of people, where most people grow in cocoa, they do drip system and it's top down. Um, what we do with the flood and drain, because we want all of that wicking action and we're flooding multiple times a day, uh, we don't need any perlite in there because we're constantly bringing fresh oxygen to the plant. And I, I should, if you don't mind, I, I'd like to dive into that because a lot of people ask, well, why do you add perlite? The, the whole point of adding perlite is to have aeration in your soil or your medium, right, to bring oxygen to the root zone. So for something like soil, where everything's very tight and compact and it holds on to a lot of moisture, uh, you need that perlite in there to, you know, room for air and for oxygen to get into your plants. Cocoa, because it's an inert medium, because it doesn't hold on to very many nutrients, and because it has a finite amount of hydration that it can hold as well, um, it becomes almost impossible to overwater in cocoa because it's only going to hold on to a finite amount of moisture. So as long as you have a pot that drains correctly, you're never going to overwater it because it's going to hold on to whatever it wants and the rest of it's just going to wash right out the bottom of the pot. This is why it's a hydroponic or considered a hydroponic medium. So the way we do with flood and drain, 
because we have the waterfall effect in our reservoirs, we flood multiple times a day. Four times a day, we're bringing fresh aerated oxygen water to the root zone. So there's no need for perlite in a flood and drain type setup because we're constantly bringing oxygen to the root zone four times a day. So perlite in our instance, not necessarily needed. Whereas if you're going to do like a top-down drain to waste, you don't have bubbles running in your reservoir or anything like that, and you're just going to water it once a day or maybe twice a day, and it's just going to sit there, you might want that perlite in there to add a little bit more aeration in there. So if that's how the roots are getting their oxygen is from the aeration in the medium as opposed to bringing you delivering oxygenated water, um, you should think about keeping some perlite in there. So again, it's going to depend on how you decide to grow in cocoa, what your feeding method is, whether or not, you know, you decide perlite's right for you. Great info on that one for sure. So what, I know you usually do from seed, uh, mm -hmm. well, at least the stuff that I've seen from seed. What size and type of grow pots do you usually start in? So for me, it all starts with the 32 ounce paper waxy cup. Uh, that is my, by far my favorite starting method. People always ask, what are those paper cups? They're waxy cups. I get them at Smart and Final here in the States. So you can order them online somewhere too. But any 32-ounce waxy cup, they come smaller. You can start smaller. You can even go bigger. I like the 32-ounce because I can get four to six weeks from seed in that cup before having to transplant. And then when I do transplant, it's great because you just rip down to the seam of the cup. The, the cups are already a little wet and soggy already. So it just rips off. The whole cup rips off, and you're left with this beautiful root zone that you get zero transplant shock, and then you can just go drop that into the larger pots. So in the larger pots, there's two different methods depending on what's in stock at the grow store. T typically what you'll see, like what I use in my seed to harvest video, those are um, eight inch cocoa pots or cocoa tech baskets or cocoa tech pots. It's basically cocoa that is, they use to glue uh, some kind of adhesive medium and it's hard pressed into the shape of a pot and it will hold its uh, it'll hold its shape there for 10 to 12 weeks in flower run, no problem. So typically I'll do the seeding veg in the paper cup and then transplant to the 8-inch Cocoa Tech pots uh, and flower in that. Now recently, over the course of the last year, those have been increasing in price and it's like $3 per Cocoa Tech basket. Uh, and that can get quite expensive, especially when you use it once and then you're throwing it away. So uh, I've also used, and I've dug out and I'm doing it now, um, I use the 8-inch net pots, and those are plastic pots. And typically what I'll do with the 8-inch net pots is I'll put a layer of hydrogen at the bottom of the pot for about an inch or two, and that's what covers up all the holes in the net pots because a net pot isn't a typical pot, you know, where it has just a couple uh, drain holes. Basically, the entire bottom, you know, one inch of the pot is all mesh, so you get lots of good uh, water up and down. But the problem is cocoa can <laughs> fall out and into your tray. So when I do the 8-inch net pots, line the bottom with a layer of hydrogen, then put the cocoa in on top of that. That way the cocoa, when it gets wet, it kind of solidifies into a, you know, a root mass and the roots will get in and help solidify all that. But it prevents the cocoa from draining out. So 8-inch Cocoa Tech uh, baskets or 8-inch um, net pots, and that seems to be the best size. And the reason I go with the 8-inch size pots is because when we're doing, again, flood and drain with cocoa, because it's hydroponic, the root zone will the roots will just grow out of the pot and right into the tray, and so the plants don't really get root bound all that much in 
flood and drain with cocoa because it's hydroponic because you're flooding four times a day. Even when the root zone grows out into the tray, it's still getting water four times a day. It's still staying plenty wet, plenty hydrated, and it's getting plenty of oxygen. So they're just going to sit there in the tray and be happy. You don't have to worry about it. All right, so let's flip over to nutrients. So cocoa is yeah. an inert medium, doesn't have any nutrients in it to begin, so you need to start feeding you know, right away. Mm-hmm. Um, what type of nutrients do you use? When does your first feeding happen, and what does it consist of? So I use uh, the formula canna, the, the full canna cocoa formula, which is canna cocoa A and B as the base nutrients, uh, cannazyme for our enzymes, rhizotonic for the root zone, uh, and then uh, later in the flower, we'll add in the PK-13, and then we'll add uh, some of the boost as well when we get in the flower. And then the only supplement I add is mammoth pea for my microbes. And and that's it. And I will use that recipe starting from seed. But now the trick is you can't just dump in full nutrients right away uh, from seed. So uh, canna runs off of the uh, electroconductivity uh uh, system as opposed to parts per million. So I go off of EC. And for the viewers that don't know, um, the conversion chart, typically 1.0 EC is 500 parts per million. Uh, and that's kind of the scale. And if you ever see someone refer to, oh, well, I'm 1,200 parts per million, you can usually divide that by 500 ppm, and that'll give you a rough idea of the EC scale, at least the most commonly used EC scale. I know there's there's a couple of them out there. So in the seedling stage, right from seed, I feed at one EC, um, and so that'll be uh, cocoa A, cocoa B, my canazyme, uh, my rhizotonic, and the mammoth pea. And I'll put it in very light dosage. I have the whole recipe laid out in my seed to harvest video, and that starts from seed. And even from seed, I'm watering four times a day. So the tray gets flooded four times a day, three times with the lights on, and once in the middle of the dark cycle. Uh, and again, because it's cocoa, you, you can't really overwater it. So I have never had any issues with flooding so much, keeping it moist, because again, with flood and drain, that water's always oxygenated, so the root zone's always getting oxygenated water. It, it thinks it's in a DWC system. So that's my setup. That moves over all the way through veg. They'll keep 1.0 EC all the way through veg when I get ready to flip the flower, and that's when I'll bump it up to a 1.3 EC. Uh, and so we just basically add a little more cocoa A and B, a little more canazyme, a little more rhizotonic, boost everything up a little bit to 1.3 EC. Mammoth, I keep the same kind of all throughout. That kind of feeding doesn't change because it's just microbes. We're just inoculating the cocoa with microbes every week when we do a new reservoir. And then we'll add in the boost. And the boost is our carbohydrates. So the boost is all of our sweeteners, the carbohydrates to feed the microbes that are there. Uh, the mammoth pea helps everything, uh, you know, boogie inside the rhizosphere. And then during weeks three to five is when we add in the PK1314. So we're going to add a little more potassium, a little more phosphorus, uh, help the plant get into that budding stage. Uh, but again, a trick with canna, when you add in the PK13, it can really not only up your EC, but really up your pH as well. So you have to keep an eye on that. So typically what I like to tell people, the two to three weeks that I'm adding in the PK1314, which is usually like weeks three to five of flower, it, it, typically it'll be weeks four and five of flower. Like I have a short, shorter flowering strain. I know it's going to be an eight-week strain. So then I'll usually do weeks four, weeks five. If it's going to be a longer strain, I know it's, this is going to be a 10-week strain, or like if I'm growing the Maui Wowie, you know, okay, this is going to be a 12-week strain. I'll do it for three weeks. So I'll do weeks three, four, five, just to get that budding cycle going more. But when you add that PK-13, 
you got to pull back on the A and B. Because what happens is you'll shoot way over your 1.3, you'll get like 1.6, 1.7 EC, and then your pH will be upwards around like 6.5, which I should also note we haven't really touched on pH. Uh, when growing in cocoa, you really want to keep your nutrients around 5.8 pH because where the way cocoa uh, interacts with the root zone, we talked about that. Because of the way uh, that all functions, you want to keep your pH around 5.8 as opposed to 6.5 is what you're shooting for in soil. Um, so this way you have different set of nutrients available to the plant. So in order to keep that around 5.8, I usually pull back my flowering newts, my AB, back to my veg formula. So I'm only adding 1.0 EC of you know my normal can canna formula like I would for veg by adding in the PK-13. That's going to bump it up to 1.3. So uh, I always warn people about that. Don't just dump it in. Make sure you're adjusting your A and B because you always got to keep an eye on how many you know EC or parts per million you're feeding your plants. Um, and, that, and that's really the formula all the way through flower. And then when we get to the flush stage, uh, which is really a term, I call it flush because a lot of people refer to it as flush. Uh, again, I, I don't believe in flushing. I think it's a giant waste of water. We don't flush uh, in the system we do. We just cut off the nutrients to the plant because, again, the cocoa doesn't have any nutrients in it. So just by simply stopping providing the A and B to the plant, it's going to immediately start to turn on itself and start to pull food from all of its fan leaves. So it's very easy to kick the plant into that self-consumption mode and to absorb and use up all the nutrients in the plant itself. And that's how you get those beautiful fall colors. That's the plant eating itself during flush. So what we'll do is to keep things going in the rhizosphere, cut the A and B, but during the quote unquote flush stage, we're running our enzymes. So I'm running canazyme. Uh, I'm running the boost for the sweeteners, and I'm still running mammoth pea for my microbes as well. So this way, the enzymes are breaking down all that leftover dead root zone. They're still doing their thing. Sweeteners are in there for all the microbes to, to get down and get busy with it, and you're still you know, continually inoculating with microbes. You can never have enough microbes, in my opinion. And that's the flush. Uh, it's not like we run a bunch of water through the plant. It's just the plant could easily turn on itself, and then you know one week to two weeks, your plant's fully flushed. And that's... That's the whole feeding formula. It really is that simple. It's five bottles, uh, six if you include the PK-1314, uh, and that's it. The only extra additives I would add in would be my you know, weekly IPM, but that, that's not really nutrient-based. Yeah, the whole flushing thing, um, so much debate still so to this much day debate. about yep. flushing. And uh, it, it's funny because, well, it's, it's frustrating because some people call flushing as in running a large amount of water through. Other people consider flushing just cutting off nutrients at the end. So that adds in confusion. So you got people talking about two different types of flushing. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, uh, whether you, whether or not you believe in flushing, um, you know, leave that up to the grower. I exactly. know there has been a study yeah. out there. Um, Arc Screen Technologies did a study on it. I actually did a kind of like a recap type video um, on my uh, this channel right here, Garden Talk with Mr. Grow. I, I talk about the study that they did and kind of my thoughts, my opinions on, on that. Um, but definitely, it's good to see that there's actually now studies coming out on flushing and, um, in a sense, debunking it. I mean, we know that um, the, the nutrients in the plant aren't uh, aren't um, say leached out and then it's not the nutrients a buildup of nutrients within the buds and that's what's causing the bad flavor i mean that yeah. that's a myth that has been busted and uh and things like that but 
Anyways, we're not talking about flushing in this yeah. episode. We're talking about cocoa, but a little side note. Yeah. Uh, but getting back into the cocoa side of things. So when I grew in cocoa, you mentioned pH. And what I would always do is 5.8 pH going in. So I'd, I'd do my nutrient solution, uh, add in the different nutrients, mix them up in the bucket, and then add, uh, pH it to 5.8. And I would just check the pH going in, going out. Because of that, my, from my understanding, that cation exchange you going in isn't always going to be what's coming out over time. Um, you could see that runoff go way up. So you might be putting in 5.8, but your runoff might be six point whatever. Exactly. Um, so mm-hmm. I've always been, I've always ignored it, uh, that runoff. I know there's going to be people who are commenting on this and they're going to say, I checked the runoff and this works for me. No, okay. Well, that's, uh, so that's your, that's your rhizosphere doing its job. The rhizosphere is going to auto-adjust yep. the pH for you. So it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Yep. Uh, and again, though, but because of that, that's why a lot of people say, well, you shouldn't do flood and drain because your reservoir is just going to drift up to like 6.2 or 6.5. Again, part of the reason why I love using canna is because it's rock solid. Um, when I set my pH at 5.8, it is not budging. I can come back a week later. It's going to be 5.8. doesn't matter how many times I flood my table. So the system itself is extremely stable, even when adding in the mammoth pea. Now, some microbes are incompatible with the system, right? I've, I've used the plus C, uh, which some people have added in, and then it's like a very cheap alternative to mammoth microbes. Phenomenal. I use it in the greenhouse right now. It's awesome. I love it. Can't use it in cocoa because the microbes are so powerful, the plus C will adjust the root zone and the reservoir to 6.5. So you have to make sure the inputs you're putting into your system are fully compatible. Part of the reason I also like Mammoth P with the canna is because the root zone and the rhizosphere does not adjust the pH. So I can add in the Mammoth P, get all the benefits from it, and it doesn't adjust my uh, rhizosphere. So my pH is staying 5.8 consistently. But yes, if you're doing drain to waste or and if you're seeing your, your runoff come off a little different pH, don't worry about it. That's your root zone doing its job. That's what it's supposed to be doing. And, and just to clarify, you're doing 5.8 pH for the entire life of the plant, right? Yep. Yep. The okay. only time I don't really pay attention to it is, again, during that quote-unquote flush week, but we're not adding in A and B, and the plant's consuming itself anyway, so I'm not really worried about the root zone at that point. It's just making sure there's no nutrients in there so the plant can do its thing on its own. Okay. And then what type of water do you use? So that... Is, you know, it's funny. We we always get to water at the end. And every time I get asked this question, I realize, you know, it's probably the most important thing we probably should have talked about <laughs> at the beginning is starting with a clean slate. Uh, and that is I use reverse osmosis water. Uh, and I highly recommend it no matter where you're at, even if you have really clean city water. If you're going to grow with cocoa and you're starting with an inert media with nothing in it, you should also start with water, H2O, that has nothing in it, which is why I love reverse osmosis water. So there's nothing in it. Uh, and so when I'm saying watering at a P, a, you know EC of 1.0 or 1.3, all of that is pure nutrients. Uh, I, I have a discussion with a friend of mine. He's running emerald harvest in soil, and I just had to walk through with through him. Okay, so let's measure your water coming out of your tap. Okay, it's 0.7. Okay, we want to add 1.0 of nutrients into this, right? So we got to, you know, adjust and make sure 1.5 to 1.7 is going to be our target. So you have to know what your water is going in versus, you know, what's going to be on the other side. And even then, 
even if you're only adding one EC to that, what's available to the plant at a 1.7 EC is going to be different than at like a 1.3 or 1.0 EC. So again, just best to start with a fresh, clean slate if possible. <clears throat> I know everyone can't, so uh, I totally understand that. But if it's possible, start with the first osmosis water <clears throat> and you will see a huge difference in the plant. I saw such a huge difference just from switching between tap water to reverse osmosis water that I myself will not drink tap water ever again. I always drink either reverse osmosis water or some type of filtered water. Just from seeing the difference in health and the way the plants react going from tap to RO, it's like, oh, yeah, what am I putting in my body? <laughs> I agree. I'm the same way. Um, definitely only drinking uh, RO water. Um, I tried using tap water, my tap water, for a grow before, and it was just a fail because um, it actually comes in at like 80 ppm sodium, uh, my local water, which is it just builds up and then it just causes all sorts of issues. So, uh, you know, especially in cocoa, I totally agree with you on that one is starting with doing RO. Now, there's going to be arguments saying that ROs can be wasteful because for every gallon, you're going through three gallons and so on and so forth. Not but for me. Not for you. <laughs> no, well, well, because uh, it's not a waste for me because I collect my water. So uh, yep. I'm very – part of the reason for me at least as a grower and why I grow with cocoa and why I'm able to harvest and collect all that water is I, I grow in California. So we have very, very strict water rules in California, especially in residential zones. We go through droughts all the time. We just had another winter with like literally like little to no rain at all. So this summer the water restrictions are going to be – hardcore i can already tell so what i do is i collect all of my reverse osmosis water waste if you will into a giant catch bin on the side of my shed out the back side of my shed now and so i will take that and then reuse that water to water all of the ornamentals in the rest of my backyard so all the plants that i don't have to eat i have a bunch of veggies and other stuff i grow in addition to medicinal plants so i'll use the reverse osmosis water for all of the ornamentals in the garden so i still use it to water it's not like it's going right into the drain so again if you have the space in the setup, you can use reverse osmosis water and be very responsible with it. So then what else? What also I do is, in addition to collecting the, the uh, wastewater and using that for the ornamentals, every time I pump and dump my reservoir, I take my good nutrient-filled water and I will sprinkle that in all of my veggie gardens. And so my vegetables get like a nice boost of a little canna, you know, once a week here and there, and they love it. And I get beautiful you know they're all grown in organic soil but they get amended with you know a, a little bit of uh, uh, reservoir uh, waste uh, you know every week or two weeks depending on when I'm dumping the reservoir so the veggie garden loves that so it's great I get you know great medicinal plants I get great vegetables and my ornamentals look fantastic because they get plenty of water too so uh, you know and my water bill is only about 75 80 dollars a month uh, which you know, I, I don't know how that relates to other parts of the country, but for California, that's a relatively low water bill with a family of four and running a whole hydroponic garden in my backyard. So That's some really good tips for reusing water, yeah. and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of people are doing the um, RO water, and then I know my, for me, I'm, mine's just connected to the drain, the output, so I am wasting the RO. And now that you mentioned that, I might actually switch over to putting that into a bucket or something like that and reusing it in some way. So, yeah, <laughs> glad you uh, glad you mentioned that one. 
So um, I think I know the answer to the next question, but I'm still going to ask it. Yeah. When growing in cocoa, do you use any cover crops or mulch layers at all? Nope, nope. And, and in fact, the uh, like I mentioned, that, that wicking that happens, uh, I like it because it will wick all the way up, and then the top surface stays like just below damp, if, if that makes sense. So like the surface layer is just dry. And it actually is great because it keeps the fungus gnats and things away on its own. Uh, and again, I don't want any cover crops because part of the reason I grow in the cocoa is because I know it's inert. So for me, it's a lot easier to know what's going in to the root zone. Uh, so I know the plant's getting only what I give it. I don't have to worry about pH drift or, or this drifting or cover crop doing this or that. Uh, and even pest, infestation, inf pest infestations and things like that. Um, the, again, the, the just to elaborate a little more on why I love it so much is because if there is a problem, if I start to see a magnesium deficiency or nitrogen deficiency or, uh, worst case, even a toxicity, I can adjust my formula very quickly uh, and then reset the plant very quickly. Whereas in soil or a different medium, you're going to get a couple days before you actually start to notice something's wrong. Um, so I like that I can address that immediately. But the flip side of that is that problems are going to happen immediately. So, you know, if a pump goes out, you only got 24 hours before that root zone's dead. <laughs> so you better get in there quick and fix it. Let's shift gears into temperature now. Mm -hmm. um, what temperature do you typically aim for in your grow room? You can do maybe lights off temperature, lights on temperature and lights off temperature. So my grow room will range uh, from the low 70s up to the low 80s. I try to keep uh, anywhere from like a 10 to 12 degree swing if I can. Uh, when I start to hit 15, you know, degree swing, I'm a little hesitant. I just I worry because I've had so many bad experiences, but I'm not even going to say the P word. Um, and so for temperatures, because I run LED, I actually like to run my room a little hotter. Um, I run LED in veg and in flower, and LEDs don't give off the IR heat that uh, an HPS or CMH light would. So as a result, the leaf temperature is typically lower because they're not getting blasted with IR. So I need to keep my rooms slightly higher in temperature so that way the leaf is warmer from the ambient temperature as the room because they're not getting baked by the lights. Now, the temperature controller, the exhaust controller I have in my room is set to 78 degrees. So typically what will happen is my flower room and my veg room, the flower room vents and it just recirculates inside the shed itself. Uh, and then when the entire shed itself gets above 78 degrees, the, the exhaust fan kicks in and it exhausts. So usually what I get is uh, by the time it heats up, the room gets to about 80, 81 degrees. The exhaust fan will kick in and then usually it'll drop down to about 75 degrees and then it'll kick off. And so it's usually going to stay within that 75 to 82 range. On some cold nights, it'll really dip down, you know, like 72. And on really hot days, it may dip up into the high 80s. Uh, and typically, because where I'm at in the summer to get triple digits, that's when I'll actually just even turn my exhaust fan off. Because when it gets really hot during the day, which is my lights off period, if it's 100 degrees outside, 103, 104 degrees, it's going to be 90 degrees in my shed. So I actually turn off my exhaust fan during that time. And uh, the flower room is still recirculating, but that way the shed only heats up to like 90 degrees. Because if I, if I even try and exhaust it, then I'm just going to be sucking in 103 degree air from the outside. And then you, you, before you know it, your inside of your shed is just as hot as it is outside because you're just pulling in hotter air. So 
monitor your temperatures, keep an eye on them, use automation where you can to help you. And it's not anything fancy or expensive. I just have a simple temperature controller on an exhaust fan, and that's how I monitor uh, my temperature and keep it cool. So you can do real simple things, you know, uh, forty, fifty dollar, uh, you know, automated switches that can really help make your life easier when it comes to regulating your temperature in your grow room. Now, how about humidity? Is there a certain humidity that you you'll aim for throughout the different stages of growth? Did you chase after VPD or what? Um, well, I I did chase after VPD, and now I kind of uh, luckily the way I have my room dialed in, it kind of settles in to that. VPD window roughly just by having everything dialed in so I don't have to necessarily chase for it like some people do. But dehumidifiers, having if you're growing in an enclosed environment and you're ventilating, you have to have a good dehumidification system um, if you're in an area where you can build up humidity. But again, in a closed space, even if you're outside, your climate's really dry, you put a, you know, put 10 plants in a four by four tent, they're going to build up humidity real quick inside that tent. So you better have some way to get that humidity out. Partly why I had so many problems with powdery mildew in the beginning was because I had crappy humidifiers. They weren't working well enough. Uh, I wasn't even pumping it out. Uh, there was a, a wonderful uh, episode of GrowTube where Subcold just totally tore me apart because I wasn't <laughs> training my humidifier, piping it out. Uh, and, you know, even that's a lot of trick. A lot of people don't know if you have like a 70 uh, gallon um, dehumidifier from Home Depot or Lowe's or whatever your big box store is. A lot of times you can just hook a hose up to it and just pump it out. So you don't have to worry about your bucket because when your bucket fills, the dehumidifier stops working. And then that's when humidity builds up and you get powdery mildew and all kinds of other bad things, bud rot, all kinds of stuff can happen. So so I uh, upgraded to a giant quest. Um, so I invested, I, I got a nice discount on it, which was awesome. Shout out to the, the folks at Quest. But I invested in a Quest Dual 105. So that's what I use now. It seems big and overly obnoxious, but actually because it's so efficient, I use less electricity with that big Quest than I was using with my 70 pint that I bought off the shelf from the big box store. Uh, because not only does it run less, when it does run, it's more efficient in the power that it draws. It draws lots of power, but because it's so efficient that you know extracting the humidity from the air doesn't need to be on for long periods of time. So it has very short runtime and very short cycles. So again, the way I control everything is by the flower room cycling through and the dehumidifier in the bedroom keeps everything stable. So I shoot for 50... Um, uh, 50% relative humidity in the seedling, cloning, and veg area. And just by aiming for that in that system, because I cycle, the flower room's always naturally going to be a little higher because there's more plants in there. So the flower room's right around 60% relative humidity. And that's where I like to run things. I like to be 60 to 65 in the grow flower area and 50, uh, even sometimes down into the 40s, uh, if I can, uh, in the veg area. And again, that's because in my area, uh, being in the San Francisco Bay, even though I'm inland on the East Bay, you know, if it's a really foggy day in San Francisco, later that afternoon, all that's going to push inward east and I'm going to get all that humidity is going to come in. So it can be, you know, 20 percent outside one day and it can be 45, 50 percent outside the next day. And those huge swings, that's what leads to powdery mildew and everything else in the neighborhood. So always like to make sure I keep my ventilation and everything going. So I got 50 percent in veg and 60 to 65 in flour. Now, CO2. Do you do any supplementation for CO2 at all or no? I don't uh, because I don't have a sealed room. I would love to try it. I I've thrown some of the Teen V Naturals uh, things in the bottom of the grow room 
before, but again, I'm always constantly not only cycling with the bedroom, but I'm always cycling and pulling in air from the outside. So it's always getting fresh air uh, and it's getting fresh carbon from that way. But I, I, it's hard for me to tell if it makes a difference because I'm always exchanging the air, uh, perhaps in a sealed room. Uh, if I ever get to that stage, I would certainly give it a shot, but I just, I just don't have a whole lot of experience with it. All right, so let's flip backwards for a second. You already talked about your whole feeding routine, uh, but I do have a couple questions in regards to this. You already mentioned what you use for microbial inoculants. Mm -hmm. Do you incorporate any sugars into your garden at all? Like some people will uh, you know, use molasses as a soil drench, for example. Uh, some people use honey, so on and so on. Do you use any of that when you're growing a cocoa or no? I, I do, and that's where the can of boost comes into play. So uh, it's a proprietary blend, so I don't. they don't even tell us what's in it. Um, it's a, but I know it's it's fermented kelp as well as uh, some molasses and some sugars in there as well. So that is definitely included in the boost. Uh, I definitely recommend people to use sugars of some kind. That's what's going to feed your rhizosphere and all the microbes in your rhizosphere. So you definitely want to make sure to to feed your plant uh, those carbohydrates. Uh, I've seen a lot of people use just even molasses. Um, Excuse me. You can use just plain molasses, and that works great too. My father-in-law uses molasses in his grow. He also grows in cocoa. Uh, but be careful because when you start to use all those sweet sugars, it's definitely going to attract the bugs. Uh, fungus gnats and even ants are really attracted to molasses. So be careful if you're pouring just dumping straight molasses into your plants there. Uh, definitely, you know, I like to advise people to pre-mix it, dilute it a little bit instead of just like just don't jump syrup <laughs> on your plant. Um but sugars of some kind are, are always great. And that uh, other brands I've used as well, um, uh, I've used the Remos Nature's Candy, which is a great uh, sugar booster before. Uh, even the Advanced Nutrients have some great uh, sugar boosters. The Bud Candy uh, is a go-to for a lot of people as well. It's relatively inexpensive. So whatever your preference is, each one is going to have a little slightly different flavor to it. I, I still believe that. Um, I've never been. I've seen some sweeteners out there. They're like blueberry flavored or strawberry flavored or citrus flavored, and I, I've tried those in the past, and kind of changes the flavor of your plant. Not really. I don't know. It's debatable, but um, just sugars in general, just carbohydrates to feed your, um, uh, your, your microbial and your rhizosphere zones, and that's really the most important thing. Flavors subjective. <laughs> And then I know that you're doing a flood and drain system, um, but I still want to ask this. Do you do any type of um, teas at all, whether it be an aerated compost tea or a nutrient tea, manure tea, anything like that at all? No, no teas in the cocoa. Uh, I'm, I do in my garden. So I do use the microbial teas from Extreme Gardening. They have the little tea package, which is great. So like once a month, I'll, I'll do up a tea and then just feed that to my vegetable gardens. Uh, I didn't do that in the greenhouse this year only because I, I just ran out of them and didn't they didn't have any in stock at my grocery store. So I was lazy. But uh, in the soil, I certainly do, but not for cocoa. I Again, just going back to what I mentioned in the beginning, I really keep it simple because it's it's not only the way I grow, just with Ocean Grown and as a team, we all follow the same SOP, if you will, because, again, when we're all breeding and hunting, we're looking for consistent results every time. So we all follow the same formula. We all follow the same methodology when we're doing hunting and breeding because that's that's what we're after. So it just becomes almost a mode of, of operation just to get the work done. Love to do the teas and everything in the veggie garden and the greenhouse and lots of videos on that stuff are coming. But yeah, for the medical garden and what we do, it's very cut and dry SOP. 
Got it. And so you mentioned, you know, a few minutes ago about pests in particular, like fungus gnats uh, are an issue. You know, if you have that real wet medium, they like to thrive mm-hmm. on it. Um, so let's talk a little bit like about IPM. You briefly touched upon it. You said you do something, mm-hmm. but um, let's dive a little bit deeper. What do you do in your garden in order to prevent pests? Sure. So my IPM consists of two things. It consists of a weekly uh, spray as well as an actual in-reservoir um, oil. So I use SNS 209. Uh, I use SNS 209 about 1.1, 1.2 mils per gallon. I have a 20-gallon reservoir, so I put 30 milliliters of SNS 209 in the reservoir. What SNS 209 is, it's basically rosemary oil. Uh, and what it does is it's fine for the root zone. The plant will slowly absorb and take up the rosemary oil. And what happens is it actually changes the flavor of the plant. And so when the bugs actually go to bite into the plant, that tastes bad and it actually they're like oh this is not a plant that i should be eating and then they leave and they go to search for some other type of of plant it's not a contact killer if you will so it's really more of a repellent so throughout the veg stage i always keep the sns 209 in the reservoir now when i flip the flower i completely stop the SNS-209 because it has a half-life of about five weeks. So it's going to take five weeks roughly for that rosemary oil taste and flavor to dissipate out of the plant and the root zone itself. So you don't want to be running SNS-209 through flour because you're going to go to smoke your buds at the end. And if you run it too long, they're going to smoke and taste like crap because of the rosemary oil. So be very careful of that. So that's my in-reservoir. So that's great because not only does it help with the repelling the the pests that try to eat the plant, it keeps the reservoir clean as well. I don't have to worry about springtails, fungus gnats, things inside the root zone because they just don't get along with the rosemary oil. Now, for my weekly spray, I use Spinosad. Uh, I use Captain Jack's Spinosad. I just prefer to like that brand. Uh, the Monterey Spinosad works good as well. The Monterey definitely has some spearmint oil in there as well. You can definitely tell there's some mint or spearmint oil in there as opposed to pure Spinosad. But the Captain Jack's, that's the contact killer. And so I use Captain Jack's once a week as a foliar, uh, and I like to do it on top underneath get all sides of the plant it's okay if a little bit drips down into the reservoir doesn't seem to have any effect on the ph or the plants the root zones don't seem to mind Um, if you're really going to drench them i definitely recommend take the plant out of your tray you don't want you don't want to put dump a bunch of spinosad into your your tray because that's going to wash you know obviously into your reservoir so if you're going real heavy pull it out but i like spinosad because i can spray lights on don't got to worry about it it takes care of everything and that's kind of my you know uh, SNS 209 in the reservoir weekly. Uh, once a week, every Saturday morning, I get in there and I spray with the Spinosad. Now, what you can do, because bugs will build up a tolerance to things, you can even go further. And what I've recently started doing is I've been testing out the Mammoth Can Control. And this is new to me. And I'm actually going light on this because it's very heavy in the, the, the thyme oil and the spearmint oil. So the smell can be a little obnoxious. For me, uh, it works great. It, it, my only complaint is the odor. Uh, when I use, if I use it uh, and use the can control, the odor will last for several days in the garden. And to me, that's just not pleasant. I prefer the smell of my medicinal plants as opposed to the smell of spearmint oil. But it works great. So uh, I've just been like once a month throwing in the can control just as something to something different than the spinosad, uh, you know, in case new pests were to come into the garden or something maybe building up uh, resistance to the uh, spinosad itself. But that's how I approach my IPM. And again, no matter what your IPM is, I highly recommend get into an IPM 
routine and stay on the routine because once you stop, you get lazy for one week. Next thing you know, boom, here come the pests. Uh, and it's right when you right when you start to relax, they're, they'll catch you slipping. The pests don't care. They're working 24-7. So you start to slip, they're going to cruise right in your garden. <laughs> Makes sense. Some really good tips there for sure. Okay, uh, so a couple last questions here. Um, so taking everything you've learned about your about growing in cocoa throughout your experience, what advice do you have for people who are new to growing in cocoa? You've the, already given so much advice yeah. in this episode, so, I know. Yeah, so. no, no. So, so I think one of the best tips I could give is um, if you're going to grow in cocoa, because your nutrient formula is going to be so important, get a five-gallon bucket. And take an afternoon, and some people will hate it because they're going to feel like they're wasting nutrients. But mix up your formulas. Get a, get a couple five gallon buckets. Mix up your formula. Um, how do you plan the water? Are you going to keep this five gallon bucket all week? Mix up your formula ahead of time and let it just sit in your shed or your backyard for a week. Is that pH going to drift over time? How many days do you have with whatever formula you're using where it's still going to be viable for you to feed into your plant? If you're doing drain to waste, that's great. But if you mix it up at 5.8 pH and you have a 20-gallon reservoir that's going to slowly deplete over the course of the week because you're top feeding – what does that pH in your reservoir look like at the end of the week? What are you feeding your plants? So really the biggest tip I can give is just work on your formula. Don't just believe what they give you on the back of the bottle. Mix what's on the back of the bottle. You'll be surprised to realize how insanely high it is. Wait, that's not 1.0. You see, that comes out to like 2.5. Yeah, it does. Uh, a lot of times companies will give high, uh, you know, use lots of nutrients and they want you to really max out your plants uh, because, you know, hey, you're buying more nutrients. You're going through more nutrients that way. Your plants don't need that much. I am of the mindset of, you know, especially with cocoa, feed small because we're feeding every single time we water. So 1.0 we see in veg, 1.3 in flour. Mix your nutrients up in that five-gallon bucket. Play with your nutrients ahead of time before you get into it. Know your nutrient system because that's going to be the most vital thing in your cocoa grow. So make sure you know what you're feeding your plants. Good stuff. So how can the listeners find you and what do you have upcoming in the future? Well, you can find me here on YouTube, which is great. Uh, Mr. Groat will have the links in the description. I have my YouTube channel, Doggo the Hut. That's where I cover uh, all of my garden updates and what's going on in the medicinal garden. We also have the Growers Workshop channel now as well, which is a new podcast and show, and that airs Friday nights at 7 p.m. Some weeks we're live. Some weeks it's a pre-recorded premiere, and we'll be live there tonight at 7 o'clock as well. So you can find us Fridays at 7 there, also on YouTube. And then last but not least is Instagram. You can find me at Dog with a Hut on Instagram. And I'm on Twitch and Twitter and all the other platforms too, but YouTube is primary, and then Instagram, you can catch a lot of the, a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Awesome. Well, once again, Dago, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. I think this was a great episode. Oh, thanks uh, for having for me. This, this is beginners. engaging and this is, this is fantastic. So yeah, Absolutely. don't be afraid. Jump in everybody. Just start growing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd love to hear in the comments section, what tips do you have for growing in Coca Coir? For those of you who grow in Coca Coir, uh, let us know down in the comment section below and I'll leave it at that. Once again, thank you. And uh, yeah, have a good one. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Bye everybody. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Garden Talk. Please leave a rating and review if you haven't done so already. It really helps the podcast, so thanks to everyone who takes the time to do that. And I will leave it at that. Until next time, peace.